to begin with, I'm going to read a story to you. Um, hopefully some of you won't kick me out of the church for reading from this book in church, but uh, hold your seats until the end of the service and then you can do that. It begins like this. Jesus realized that the Pharisees were keeping count of the baptisms that he and John performed, although his disciples, not Jesus, did uh, the actual baptizing. They had posted the score that Jesus was ahead, turning him and John into rivals in the eyes of the people. So Jesus left the Judean countryside and went back to Galilee. To get there, he had to pass through Samaria. He came to Sychar, a Samaritan village that bordered the field Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was still there. Jesus, worn out by the trip, sat down at the well. It was noon. A woman, a Samaritan, came to draw water. Jesus said, would you give me a drink of water? His disciples had gone to the village to buy food for lunch at this time. And the Samaritan woman, taken aback, asked, How come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews in those days wouldn't be caught dead talking to a Samaritan. Jesus answered, If you knew the generosity of God and who I am, you would be asking me for a drink, and I would give you fresh, living water. The woman said, Sir, you don't even have a bucket to draw with, and this well is deep, so how are you going to get this living water? Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well and drank from it? He and his sons and livestock passed it down to us. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks this water will get thirsty again. No, sorry. Anyone who drinks this water I give will never thirst, not ever. The water I give will be in artesian spring within gushing fountains of endless life. The woman said, Sir, give me this water so I won't ever get thirsty, won't ever have to come back to this well again. He said, Go call your husband and then come back. I have no husband, she said. That's nicely put, I have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the woman you're living with now isn't even your husband. You spoke the truth there, sure enough. Oh, so you're a prophet. Well, tell me this. Our ancestors worshipped God at this mountain, but you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place to worship, right? Believe me, woman. The time is coming when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither here at this mountain nor there in Jerusalem. You worship guessing in the dark. We Jews worship in the clear light of day. God's way of salvation is made available through the Jews, but the time is coming. It has, in fact, come. When what you're, call, what you're, when what you're called will not matter, and where you go to worship will not matter. It's who you are and the way you live that count before God. You, your worship must engage your spirit in the pursuit of truth. That's the kind of people the Father is out looking for. Those who are simply and honestly themselves before Him in their worship. God is sheer being itself, spirit. Those who worship Him must do it out of their very being, their spirits, their true selves in adoration. The woman said, I don't know about that. I do know that the Messiah is coming, and when he arrives, I suppose we'll get the whole story. I am he, said Jesus. 
You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of a woman. No one said what they were all thinking, but their faces showed it. The woman took the hint and left. In her confusion, she left her water pot back in the village. She told the people, come, see a man who knew all about the things I did, who knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they went out to see for themselves. That's taken from the message by Eugene Peterson. First off, I have to give credit to N.T. Wright's book, uh, John for Everyone, for helping explain and make clear this passage to me. Um, And so, if you will, you can turn to John 4 and follow along. And while you do so, I'm going to give you a real brief history of Samaria. Now, uh, I feel like (laughs) when I was studying this passage, there's way too much in here for me to be sharing right now, and there's so many different avenues to go with, and and when it came to even looking at the history of Samaria, Samaria um, I, there's just a lot of history between the Judea, Judeans and um, the Jews and Samaritans. And so I'm giving you a very brief little rundown here, and I hope you can follow along um, and make a little bit of sense with what I say here. Samaria was the name. So first off, Samaria was the name of both a city and the surrounding region. Um, so, you know, the, at the, uh, the region lies between Galilee to the north, then you had Samaria, and then Judea on the south side of Samaria. And it was situated along a major north, um, sorry, the, and then the city of Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel and was situated along a major uh, north-south route through Palestine. Uh, the city was built by King Amri, who reigned in Terza for six years before building Samaria to be his capital. And that's in, you see that account in 1 Kings 16, uh, verse 21-24. King Ahab and Queen Jezebel built a palace with ivory inlay at Samaria. Um, Ahab died there after being wounded in battle. In the prophet Elisha's time, Samaria was besieged but was not taken. The city was then conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. after a three-year siege, ending the ten tribes of Israel's existence as a nation. In uh, 32 B.C., Alexander the Great captured Samaria during his conquest of Palestine, and then during the reign of Herod the Great, the city was rebuilt and renamed Sebastia, which it is still today. In Old Testament times, the tension between this region and the region of Judah to the south broke into open conflict uh, when the kingdom split into northern and southern kingdoms, which was in 922 B.C. after the Assyrians conquered Samaria. Uh, sorry, after the Samaria, uh, Assyrians conquered Samaria in 722 B.C., many of, uh, BC, many of the people were deported. Uh, foreigners were resettled in the region of Samaria And this led to two of the bigger disputes between the Judeans and Samaritans. And first off was that the Judeans thought of the Samaritans as ethically impure because they lived amongst and married the foreigners in the land. And then secondly, the the second dispute between the two was the Samaritans had their own center of worship on Mount Gerizim, which they thought should be the center of worship for the Israelites, but the Judeans insisted that the worship was centered in Jerusalem. And so these rivalries were still in full force during the time of Jesus' ministry on earth. 
And in this story that I just read, Jesus breaks almost every kind of expected interaction between a Judean and a Samaritan. So now, you know, being as this passage is a little long, um, I'm pretty sure most of you wouldn't be able to follow along as we read the whole thing again. I'll uh, take it by sections and we'll break it down. Starting in verse 1, uh, I'm going to tell you the first section I'm looking at here is ver verses 1 to 6. So it was not unusual um, for those traveling from Galilee to um, Judea to bypass Samaria, which meant crossing the Jordan twice. They would rather go um, across the Jordan and go through the Jordan Valley on the other side of Samaria. There was a lot of potential trouble they would encounter if they'd go through Samaria. Um, robbers were often um, along the way that would try to rob people as they came through, and it was mostly fueled because of the hatred that was between uh, the Samaritans and the Judeans. But here, Jesus takes the direct route, and he seems to do it very intentionally. And in the heat of the day, here he finds himself by Jacob's well. Then in verses 7 through 9, um, the, the, he, he sits down and starts a conversation with this Samaritan woman. And as N.T. Wright points out, Jesus was already known here as a holy man leading a movement to bring Israel back to God. And in that culture, many devout Jew, Jewish men would not have allowed themselves to be alone with a woman. Now, if they would have been caught in a situation where it was unavoidable, they definitely would not have struck up a conversation like Jesus did. The risks of impurity uh, drawn into immorality, a risk of gossip, would have been too high for them to um, talk with such a woman. Here, however, Jesus starts the conversation and, seems to catch, and it seems to catch the woman off guard. Now, another second important thing to look at in this section, obviously, is the Samaritan woman. Um, in this case, a Jewish, like I mentioned, a Jewish woman, uh, I'm sorry, a Jewish man would not try to be friendly with her simply because, simply because she was a Samaritan. Now, oh, it goes further, though. This woman seems to have a sketchy past. Um, the normal time for women to visit a well as it was some distance from the town, was to go um, at a cooler time of the day, such as the first thing in the morning or late afternoon when the sun was going down. She was probably visiting this well in midday so she wouldn't have to meet anyone at the well and have them by chance remind her of her troubles. Oddly enough, uh, Jesus ends up bringing up her past here in a little, few verses later, uh, but we'll get to that just soon. And then lastly, Jesus here asks for a drink, and him asking for a drink was far from normal. Samaritans and Judeans were not known to share drinking vessels, and here Jesus asking her, asked her to pull up a drink of water for him. Let's go on to verses 10 through 15. Um, Jesus brings up, brings up a, a little bit more of a, <laughs> a different 
side of a conversation where it's, it's, uh, it catches the woman off guard a little bit. And I'm sure she was a little confused by this when he's talking about giving, telling her she should be asking for a drink. And as per usual with stories like this, uh, the people Jesus was talking to would often misunderstand him because they would interpret his words in an earthly sense and he was actually meaning it in a heavenly sense. This happens numerous times throughout the parables. Um, so, but here he says, yeah, I asked for a drink, but you knew who you were talking to. But if you knew who you were talking to, then you would be asking me for a drink. She then asks the, uh, where the source of this living water, asks where the sources of this living water and questions Jesus' legitimacy in comparing him to Jacob. Jesus then gives a brief explanation on this living water. Um, I'm going to leave that. I'm going to leave. I'm not going to talk about this living water quite yet. I'm going to address that later on. And I'm going to keep moving on. Um, yeah, it feels like maybe we're rushing through this a little bit. But like I said, there's a lot here to take in. So verses 16 to 18, 18 um, Jesus now brings up her past and mentions that she had five husbands, and he's currently unmarried to another man. Now, we don't necessarily know what transpired between those other marriages. Now, it's left unsaid, um, and we can become critical and act like or assume she probably divorced him and she was all the fault, but we don't know. Um, these men could have died. Could have died. Yeah, they could have been in divorces. A man could have left her for another woman. Um, or maybe she had other emotional issues of trauma that kept her from forming a bond with man. Her life was troubled, messed, possibly, that led to all of this. But whatever the case, it, it does seem clear that her life was a mess um, because, well, she wasn't meeting, wanting to meet other women at that time of the day at the well. Um, and she knew she had trouble, and obviously Jesus knew that too. And so her reaction is classic, uh, human uh, way to respond, Jesus brings up a pressure point, and in true human tendency, she starts talking about something else. She starts in at verse, 20, uh, verse 19, and here she brings up the talking point of worship. Now, Jesus makes it a point then to say that from now on, holy mountains would not matter. Instead, the true and living God is not bound to geographically or is bound to idols. God instead is spirit, and true worship is done with true spirituality and in truth. Jesus' words were likely too much for her, and she uh, definitely wouldn't agree with the phrase, salvation comes from the Jews, as he mentioned in here. And she probably had no idea what he meant when he said what he said about worship. So she attempts to end the conversation with an, uh, with an agree-to-disagree statement, where she says the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he'll tell us everything. Now, the story doesn't end here, but I'll circle back to the ending a little bit later. And here I'd like to talk about what could possibly be the point of this story. Anyone have any clue what you think might be the point of this story? What do you think Jesus is trying to draw and teach this woman? Nothing, Dave? <laughs> well, I mean, there's lots of points. Sure. He's trying to draw here, so I, 
read to relate to others. Mm -hmm. No matter what their circumstances or situations are, they're Yep. And you have to, you know, to care about people, mm -hmm. welcome them today, and to help them do a, you know, get out of what their mess is, that's the vision, and that's so. Yes, on how to relate to other people would definitely be one of them, yes. Pretty bluntly says that he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah, so he's trying to bring that across to her, sure. Mm -hmm. Breaking down barriers in cultures. Mm -hmm. There'd be a few others. Spiritual water, mm -hmm. definitely would be one. You comfortable with those? Is that enough of what we can get from here? Sure, he does try to bring it into human tendency, but then like I mentioned earlier, he then, he then brings a, whole, uh, a heavenly meaning and uh, we are limited in our own mental thinking, I suppose. Yeah, I, thank you for those, and those are all true. And like I said, there's plenty here um, that you can draw from, but the main point that I want to talk about is what Gareth mentioned, that is the living water. I feel like this is a key point in, in his, in his um, talking to this Samaritan woman. This point lies in verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read that. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman responds, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Remember back about what I had said about Jesus talking in a heavenly sense and people understanding in an earthly sense. And the clue that this was this type of a case lies in the phrase living water. Because living water was a phrase they used in their time like we would use the term running water. Um, living water refers to a stream, living or running water refers to a stream or a river. Uh, that is likely to be fresh and clean, whereas standing water, like a pond or a well, can become stale and stagnant. So here Jesus is by well saying that she should be asking for running water. And what Jesus is saying here about living water is something heavenly instead of earthly. Not only will the water he offers Quench your thirst so you will never thirst again, but it will also become like a spring that bubbles inside of you. Jesus saw straight into the woman's heart. Her life was a dirty, stagnant well full of relationship issues. And Jesus pointed out, and, point, and Jesus pointed this out to her, proving that what she needed was living, running water to flow through her and cleanse her of her past and offer her a new and refreshing life. 
what exactly is this living water that Jesus is talking about? Turn to John 7. Very briefly, going to look at this small section, John 7, 37 through 39, reads like this. In the last, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is, com who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So what is this living water? Anyone? The Spirit. Thankfully here, John uh, gives an explanation uh, of what the Spirit is, and by this he says the living water is the Spirit of God. And he also says that the rivers of living water will flow from within them, and the word flow from within them, and the word used properly here refers to stomachs or bellies. So it gives you a wild mental picture of rivers of water coming out of your belly. Um, that would be the way it's translated. Now, he says here, Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Where could that possibly have been found? And there may have been a few passages uh, they could refer to, but it is believed he was drawing that from Ezekiel 47. I'm going to read a uh, big section in here. You don't have to turn to it. It's a great story form again. If you'd rather not follow along and just listen, that's fine. Um, but I feel like it's important to read it because it's pretty beautiful to um, things start to make sense. This whole story is pretty neat. Then he brought me back to the door. So I should, I need to give a little bit of Clarifications. Uh, this is the this is the vision that Ezekiel is having, um, and it's you know there's a there's going to be a river that is flowing out of the new temple, um, and as he is guided along along this river, um, well you'll see what happens. So this is a vision that Ezekiel is having. I'm going to be begin in verse one. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside of the outer gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. Going on eastward, with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, and it was waist deep. Again he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had risen, it was deep enough to swim in, a river that, that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the back of the river. As we went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into um, Arabah and enters the sea. When the waters flow into the sea, the water will become fresh. 
And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this, wa for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from um, Enjadi uh, to Enaglade. It will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt, and on the banks on both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail, but they will bear fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So as they're walking along this river, he's measuring every so often, and as they keep going further and further away from this temple, the water keeps getting deeper and deeper, deeper till it is impassable. And finally, when the river reaches the Dead Sea, it makes the water in the Dead Sea fresh. Now, obviously, that was a salty sea, and so the idea here, this fresh water comes in and pushes away and makes way for fresh water, pushes aside the salt water. Wherever this river goes, it brings with it new life because the water flows from the sanctuary. And the same image is actually used in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. I'll just quickly... Wait a minute. Revelation 22, 1 and 2, same type of image says... The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. I'm going to stop there. So the same type of an image where the water is coming through, a crystal clear water that is refreshing. And Jesus wants, to take in, wants us to take in this living water. It will bubble inside of you and chase away the stale, stagnant, sinful waters of our heart. When our hearts are cleansed, of his, when our hearts are cleansed his living water, God's Spirit will flow out into the world around us and where the spirit is and sorry and where the spirit of god is there is change a clear refreshing stream that can bring life to others someone tell me now what is the ending of the story of the samaritan woman what happened to her What happened to others? I didn't necessarily read it, I suppose, but hopefully some of you can tell me. One day she went back and told others what she had seen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then what? She went into the town and told her people her experience, and she even dared to raise the question asking if he could be the Christ. And those people, they rushed out to the well to meet Jesus. Then Jesus proceeds to give a harvest speech and ends up staying in Sychar for another two days. 
and it says that many in the city believed. It started with just one person. Probably the most unexpected person in the town brought change to a city, all because she asked Jesus for, and he gave her that living water that would purify and wash away the stagnant and embarrassing water that had fulfilled her life. So here's what I want you to take from today. I don't want you to look back at how small or how big your river that has come out from you. I don't want you to look back and think of where you could have done something different, where you missed an opportunity here in your past or uh, made a sinful mistake here or there. But instead, look at today and look forward. You can be a temple of God that has living water flowing out of it. And as your life goes on, that shallow stream can turn into an impassable river that brings life and pleasure to everyone who it touches. Why? Because where the Spirit of God is, there is truth and there is life. Let's pray. God, we, we look at this story, and as we read, read what you had to say about this river um, that flows, can flow out from us, God, we want you to fill our hearts, fill us with your Spirit, so that everything that comes out of us is a healing and life-giving stream to everyone amongst us. Help us to be um, the witnesses and the light and the um, life-giving source that you want us to be. I pray that we um, would rely on your spirit to um, prompt our minds wherever um, needs be and that your spirit can touch everyone that we come in contact with and fill us, help us to be bubbling over with your spirit. We thank and praise you. Amen.